Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, as we talk about many things throughout um, our, our, our times together, sometimes I bring in other thoughts that I've had from from other things I'm doing. And, and one of the things that I've been doing lately is reading about John Paul II. And one of the books I have is about how communism deeply you know, affected his life in a very brutal, hard upbringing that communism brought upon it. So I eventually started reading a book about communism and it just started dawning on me about that all started, at least the uh, Russian Revolution was in 1917 and how much different the world was then than it is now. You know, electricity wasn't a common thing. There were more people riding horses than in cars. Most roads were made of dirt. Um, And those are little things that are huge, but you just don't really, I think of them that way. And the reason I bring that up is as I was going through these books and reading that, that was only 100 years ago. Jesus was 2,000 years ago about how different life was then compared to now um you know their version of plumbing then was essentially open drainage ditch with a little bit of water to push the the wastewater away essentially um you know there was no obviously there was no electricity so therefore there was no real mass communication you know and just how different life was in terms of the, the, the conditions of which you lived in compared to now, but yet the message that he teaches is still as prevalent as, as ever. And I, I was trying to get my head to wrap around that. I can't even wrap around a hundred years ago. How, you know, how can we get closer to that? Because there's part of me that feels that going through that thought process and exercise we'll have the benefits of drawing closer to why did Jesus teach this way? You know, what else was going on, you know, in the world? Um, you know, and, and I think that that's a, probably a worthwhile exercise in doing. So I wanted to take this cast to, uh, to discuss that a bit. So if I'm, if I'm getting it right, you're saying that the, the historical realities in the time of Jesus would be important for understanding what and how he taught? Yeah. I mean, every other thing I've ever read about history was the more you knew about the context around it, the more fuller the picture got. Right. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I <clears throat> processed that the right way. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And it's, uh, it's a really important part of our faith to understand that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Uh, And then if I can say about the sacred scriptures, the Bible, in a sense, the authorship of the Bible is also fully human and fully divine. And it's a very interesting point. So it's something that biblical scholarship over the past 150 years in particular has focused on is, Well, if the authors of the Bible are fully human, 
so Mark is really the author of the Gospel of Mark, mm-hmm. then Mark is going to write in a language and using images and making references to things that Mark knows, which, of course, are a Jewish context in the first century. And his, his images in, in his literary style and all of those kinds of things, the same way that we might analyze Hemingway, and we know that, or, or uh, I know Tolkien a little bit better. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote during World War II, and so you can start to make some connections between the orcs and the war machines and uh, uh, Saruman and the destruction of the, uh, the environment in order to build up the weapons of war, all this kind of stuff. You know, Tolkien was seeing that stuff around him, and so a, a knowledge of World War II can give you a little more insight into some of the writings of the Lord of the Rings. Well, can't you apply that same understanding to the evangelists or to the apostles or to go back farther into the Old Testament to the prophets or to the historical books? And the answer is yes, you can get more insight by understanding the historical context in which those things were written and understanding the literary styles. Now, different than Tolkien, mm-hmm. the author of the Bible is also fully divine. The Holy Spirit is truly the author of the whole scriptures. And so uh, we don't want to reduce it to a human project, but the human project has something essential to add. So uh, just in terms of understanding the scripture, going back and understanding the historical context is very important. And I just was was reading a little bit from... uh, At this particular time, I would encourage any of our listeners to really pay attention to the scholar and author Brant Petrie, Brant, B-R-A-N-T, Petrie, P-I-T-R-E, and he is just becoming prolific. He's publishing one book after another, and he's got a ton of stuff out on social media, and he is a phenomenal scholar when it comes to Judaism, and so of course, the context, all of the gospel and the Old Testament, the whole scripture and the whole salvation history takes place in the context of Judaism. It, it emerges out of Judaism. So if you don't understand the, the Jewish roots, we're not going to get the kind of historical insight that you were alluding to. And so understanding the Jewish roots is really critical uh, one of Brand Petrie's books, which is excellent, is called "The Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist." So he looks at that question of like, how did the apostles even conceive of the idea that they would be able to offer this ritual prayer service and that bread and wine would turn into the body and blood of Christ? Like, why would they even have any concept of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he looks at the Jewish roots, and he looks at the expectation of a Messiah bringing the new manna from heaven. That's part of the historical roots. And he looks at the, the bread of the face, the lechem hapanim, that they used in the temple, that just at the time of Jesus, they would take out once a year, lift it up on the golden table, and say, Behold the love of God for you, you know, uh, which is amazing. Uh, he he looks at a lot of different uh, predecessors, also in the Passover and the unleavened bread, and the you know and and really unpacks these things. 
as they are described in the Old Testament, but also as they were practiced in first century Judaism, which has, you know, adjustments, those things develop over time. And so uh, understanding those Jewish roots is, is really amazing. Uh, and I was just listening to uh, a podcast. He also has a book out on the Last Supper, and it's a 500-page study of the Last Supper. And again, just amazing, looking at all of the different first-century sources of Jewish practice, looking into the Old Testament and, and what's described there, and really understanding, trying to unpack exactly what happened at the Last Supper. And there are some interesting pieces in the Scripture that if you read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mm -hmm. they are very clear about, you know, preparing to eat the Passover uh, and that they're going to prepare the Passover and they talk about the Passover. In John's Gospel, there's a little bit of a, some funny expressions that it talks about. Uh, it was preparation day. It was preparation day of the Passover. And it seems like Jesus is, that Good Friday is the preparation day of the Passover, and a lot of people have interpreted that to mean that John is has some kind of different chronology going on, that he is saying that Jesus is sacrificed at the same time that the Passover lambs are sacrificed, which is the day before the Passover, mm -hmm. preparation day for the Passover. So what Brent Petrie, just to give you one example uh, to highlight what you're saying, Joe, I don't mean to go into all these details. We're not a, I'm not the biblical scholar that figure all these things out, and our listeners aren't necessarily uh, signing up for this kind of detailed analysis of Scripture. But just to give one example of how helpful it is to understand the historical context and the meaning of the language, Passover was, the word Passover was used in four different ways. One is to indicate the Passover lamb. So they talked about eating the Passover, mm. and that actually refers to the Passover lamb. You don't eat like a feast day. <laughs> yeah, sure. you know? um, but then also the feast of the Passover itself, they, uh, they use the word Passover. And then also Passover was, a, was an eight-day celebration. And so they would refer to all eight days, that whole Passover period, as Passover. We do that with Easter. Mm -hmm. We talk about Easter Day, but each day of the octave of Easter, Easter Monday, Easter Tuesday, Easter through Wednesday, they're all Easter. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying we're recording this on Easter Tuesday, you know, and I'm saying it to everybody, happy Easter, mm -hmm. because this is Easter, right? So, um, so that's a third meaning. And then a fourth meaning is there were certain sacrifices that they offered on those eight days of Passover, uh, which were grain offerings, and they would refer to them as Passovers. They would eat the Passover also in that sense. So if you don't know all four of these meanings, and you won't know all four of these meanings unless you know the historical context, unless you're reading the sources of first century Judaism and understand how they use these words, and it also appears a little bit in the Old Testament, they, they refer to things this way, then things fall into place. The word preparation is actually the word Friday. The word preparation day refers to the preparation day of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And so they would interchangeably talk about Friday and preparation day. And so what they're actually saying is preparation of Passover 
preparation day in Passover week. In other words, Friday of Passover. Mm -hmm. So Passover, the day itself, was Thursday. And then the Friday of Passover week was the day on which Jesus was crucified. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. John isn't saying he was crucified the day before Passover. He was crucified on Friday of Passover week. Mm -hmm. Oh, But if you don't know the meaning of Passover, you don't get that. And then the, the chief priests and the scribes, uh, or uh, the Sanhedrin, say, we're not going to enter into the Gentile praetorium, the, the Roman Senate, uh, or the Roman place of judgment, because that would prevent us from eating the Passover. Now, they're saying this on Friday. Why, weren't they, why didn't they eat the Passover the night before? So again, we get this sense that John is talking about something different. But if you know first century Judaism, you know that those sacrifices during the week of Passover were also referred to as Passovers. And so they eat the Passover also in those terms. And they would be ritually unclean and unable to eat it if they entered into the praetorium. So we're going to get all confused about even what the scripture means if we don't understand first century Jewish practice. And so that's why it is extremely helpful to be able to unpack what that first century historical context was like, just even to understand the basic timeline of the scripture, let alone to go into the deeper meaning of, uh, of a number of different things. Uh, now that I'm on the subject, I'll just make one last reference. Mm -hmm. Another interesting piece is, is about the fourth cup. If we understand how the Passover was celebrated, there were three cups of wine, and after the third cup of wine is drunk and shared, then a hymn is sung, and then the fourth cup is drunk. Well, there's a reference to the 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 drinking and also singing the hymn, but then they immediately go out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and it appears that the fourth cup is never drunk. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's especially in Luke's Gospel, I think. Then there's a reference to wine being lifted to the lips of Jesus on the cross. Mm -hmm. And we can gain from that that's the fourth cup. And so Jesus' Passover actually begins with the Passover meal, but it only ends on the cross. And we see how the cross itself becomes united with the Passover sacrifice. And that also makes sense of the fact that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. He's making that offering on the cross already in the Passover sacrifice. And then what we are doing <clears throat> in the Eucharist is representing that whole offering. So, anyway, I'd have to spend another half an hour to get you into all the, all the details, but hopefully it just leaves you with the impression of, like, wow, there are a bunch of things that are not obvious in Scripture, but they become more obvious if we understand the historical context, and then we can go deeper into our faith by getting all of that. Well, let's do that. Um, so, I mean, we, we have a, a number of casts here to record. So... I mean, there's just a bunch of questions that come out of there. And I think that part of this is, as a very general global statement, a lot more of us live in cities now than we ever had before. And especially here in America, you know, you think of, for instance, the, the example of whenever he had all of those people gathered, 5,000 people, I think is what it says in, in one of the Gospels, and he has no food. Like, 
what are we going to do here? And I can imagine that being a giant real issue back then that nowadays you could just essentially call up a billion of takeout places and, you know, fix that pretty easily. But it's not like they had a pizza joint sitting on the corner. Um, at least that could <clears throat> right, right. take care of it. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I think loses its impact as as we have developed our society around us now, making it easier to ascertain food and how much of a struggle that would have been then. You know, I think that people just think of, oh, it's a farm. Well, today we got farms that, you know, one guy can take care of a county with, with, with all the modern right. technology he has. And back then, how many people did it take to, to work the land? You know, I mean, even before World War II, the vast majority of this country worked on a farm. And that's not the case anymore. So um, it's that kind of thing that I think that really will drive it. I mean, just, just what you're telling about the Passover thing right there, that's all stuff that I never knew and really kind of illuminates it. So let's, uh, yeah, definitely let's let's continue down this. And if it becomes a multi-part series, so be it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I'm not a I'm not an expert at all of these things. Uh, I have a few things to offer. I've collected things along the way, and and that should also be an indication to our listeners. Uh, all of this is a matter of enhancement. So, here are some basic principles. We should be careful about coming to rash judgments about what Scripture is saying. In the same sense that you were just indicating, Joe, that uh, we read, oh, there are five thousand. And we think, oh, I feed 5,000 people, no problem. You know, that's not, that's not a big deal. Um, this is stupid. <laughs> so if we're coming to the judgment that, like, something Jesus is doing or a problem that they're having or a question is stupid, um, probably we're missing something. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's a good first principle is to not come to a rash judgment. If there's a point that's not clear or it seems like, isn't this sort of obvious? Am I missing something? Probably you are. <laughs> so uh, it's good to just w withhold judgment. And I like to store up these kinds of questions. Like there are things that strike me as a little bit funny. Um, and so I store up these questions and then I come across something like, you know, this this uh, video cast from Brant Petrie that answered that question. I've had that for a long time about the synoptics and John seeming to have different timelines for uh, Holy Week. And I just said, well, somebody has an answer. There's a reasonable explanation. I'm not going to worry about it. And when it comes up, I, I'm ready to hear it. You know, mm -hmm. So it's good to just store questions like that. And then there are some places we can look them up uh, on the Internet. There are some books we can read. Like I said, now, Brand Petrie is doing some amazing things, and he's a really good scholar. He's very thorough. He understands how to read the first century Jewish source sources. There are uh, some writings called the Talmud and the Mishnah uh, that are by, they, they're more than first century Judaism, but there are dimensions of them that are first century Judaism that are describing the practice of the law. It's a little bit like, for any of our listeners who are familiar with uh, you know, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, uh, when we celebrate Mass, we have a number of explanatory texts about 
what we're supposed to do here and what this means and how you deal with this situation. Well, the Jews also had that for their own feasts. And, uh, and then they had commentaries on the law. And so it gives us a window into what first century rabbis were teaching and gives us a sense. But, like, I don't know how to look that stuff up or how to sure. read that stuff. Brand Petrie has his fingers all through that. I mean, the Talmud is uh, like a 20-volume a set that I don't begin to have time to dig into all of that. And, um, and you need to understand some of that context, too. But, but uh, Brand Petrie is doing a lot of great things now. He and John Bergsma, who's a uh, – Brand Petrie teaches down at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans – and uh, John Bergsma teaches at Franciscan University. They're they're coming out with a 1,500-page introduction to the Old Testament. <laughs> wow! So, you got questions? They've got answers. You know. So the point is that there are a lot of great sources. Scott Hahn has also done an, a wonderful things in unpacking some of the context of Scripture and making some connections for us, and and doing it in a really applied way, not just as an academic exercise, but to help us go deeper. Um, to give you another example of a question I carried around and then an answer that, that came out from uh, one of my brother monks who had, had looked into it, there's a funny passage in Scripture where Jesus talk, gives a parable about inviting people to a wedding feast. And he, you know, he brings them in from whatever, the highways and the byways, brings them into the wedding feast. And then uh, the, the master, the bridegroom, runs into a guy who's not wearing the wedding garment. And he says, like, why don't you have the wedding garment on? And the guy is silent. And so he throws him out into the outer darkness. And you're like, what the heck, you know? Mm -hmm. Who the heck does that? I mean, they pull guys in off the street. Like, <laughs> yeah. was he supposed to rent a tux on short order? You know, like, what's the deal with that? Well, it turns out that in ancient Eastern, Middle Eastern weddings, they actually provided wedding garments at the door. So that mm. everybody would be appropriately dressed. They had, you know, beautiful things for them to wear, appropriate things for them to wear. So for this guy to not be in the wedding garment meant that he refused it at the door. Mm. Not that he, like, just was a poor guy or didn't have good taste or something. It means that he refused to wear it. So when the bridegroom sees, he's actually being merciful by saying, why aren't you wearing it? And he could have given maybe an explanation and... But his silence indicates this persistent resistance, and so he casts him out. And, and then we can relate that to things in the Christian life. You know, we can't just get into heaven because we feel like it. Mm -hmm. We need to get with the program. God is going to provide everything we need. He provides the wedding garment. You know, and we can think of that as the baptismal garment. When we were baptized, we were given a white garment, nobody has to bring that. Now, it's an, a common practice. People dress their babies in white garments, and there's a whole tradition with that. But we also give it to be a, a sign liturgically that God provides everything we need. We just need to, to bring it with us. You know, we need to not refuse it. And, and that becomes our, our ticket in to the, the heavenly wedding feast. So again, just a little historical note that helps us to understand a deeper meaning in uh in one of the scriptural parables well that's pretty huge um you know for something that, that you know i never really understood to having a lot of profound meaning to it um yeah i mean that that's an exact example there um 
as as I'm sure that you know some of them you can kind of just gather like the the one where he's planting the seeds you know you want to put the seeds in good soil and the ones that are in good soil are going to have the best chance and the ones that don't have the thickets around them are going to have problems because of all the thorns so some of them are like that one I find is 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 more direct and straightforward but you get the ones that you just mentioned about the wedding feast I never really understood that full meaning there so to to have it there is a um is is a significant thing so uh yeah that's um i thank you for that that's part of why i wanted to bring this up to have those types of moments where things are and the other one that i had wondered because you know again we're recording this just after good friday is why do they make the distinction of we I know in the Bible it says we have a law and according to our law we can't kill Jesus. Well then why is the number one thing you're pushing for is to kill Jesus if your law says you can't? Um you know, that is just a question that didn't make sense to me and I was looking to see if there was a historical thing to it. Because that's when when you go through the Good Friday Mass, that's one of the readings the um the congregation has is according to our law we can't kill him. <laughs> you have to kill him for us. And that was just something that baffled me as a, as, as a thought. Um, and I don't know if there's a, a, a rationale behind that, that I'm not getting. Uh, you cut out on me a bunch of times in that. Well, to, to cut to the, the chase here, um, the Jewish people say during the passion that according to our law, we cannot kill Jesus. But they're pushing to kill Jesus, how the Romans killed Jesus. How is that okay in, in, in their context? That, that, that's something that's always wondered me. I think, uh, I think they were forbidden from uh, – uh, this is a little fuzzy for me. I think the Roman law actually prevented them from crucifying anyone. And so they – uh, they couldn't actually do the crucifixion. I think that was actually Roman law, uh, the the law that was imposed on the Jews by the Roman occupation, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So they were basically saying, like, you know, you're you're not going to allow us to do it, so you've got to do it. We're we're handing them over to you so that you can do it. Um, now I I might have that I might have that off a little bit, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the that's the case. It, the other the other possibility is that according to jewish law they couldn't they could put to death but they would put to death by stoning um and not by crucifixion so they couldn't carry it out themselves but they could let the the romans carry it out there were a number of things that the jews like on the sabbath for example uh and this this continues today that they can't do certain things on the Sabbath, but there's nothing preventing the Gentiles from doing them. And so they'll get Gentile helpers to do certain things for them on the Sabbath so that they can observe the Sabbath rest. And still, you know, I mean, in a strict interpretation, you can't even turn your lights on and off because it creates a spark, and spark is creating a spark is work. And, uh, you know, so they have they come to ask the Gentiles to come in to turn their oven on and off or their lights on and off or something like that on the, on the Sabbath. So I can't, I can't remember offhand which of those two it is in terms of the crucifixion, whether the Jews were allowed to put to death but not crucify 
and so they get the Gentiles to do it, or whether it was because of Roman law they weren't allowed to crucify. I kind of think that's the case, um, but I just I can't remember offhand. I'm sure that's the kind of thing you probably find in footnotes, you know, good footnotes in a Bible, like the New American Bible or, or the Ignatius Study Bible. Well, that makes it like that. That was just one of the things that always made me wonder, like, why wouldn't you just do this directly? Um, yeah. So with that being said, um, we obviously covered a lot of historical topics in today's cast. Um, is there any final thoughts you want to give us as we go forward into the week? Well, just, just again, you know, really, I really want to encourage our listeners to stir up those questions. You know, I love that you, you had that question. You were carrying that around and, oh, you know, maybe here's a chance to understand what's going on there. So I think a lot of places where things are confusing rather than coming to a simplistic conclusion uh, and certainly not a dismissive or a derogatory one, but uh, store up the questions. And then when you have a chance, you know, you have a priest over to your house or you have a biblical scholar or you get a chance to look at the footnotes or you, you get buy one of Brand Petrie's books, then you start to see like, wow, there's so much more going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. And, um, you know, maybe we had answered some of the questions that you guys were looking for out there. Um, you know, please continue to help us grow the cast, send us out a retweet. Um, you know, promoting whatever methods you are using out there yourself. So we thank you all very much. We hope you guys have a great week, and we'll be with you next week.